My name is Kent, and I'm one of the pastors, and I'm really excited to be able to talk to you a little more today about what it means for us to really adore the Christ. And we're going to do that again today by looking at another one of his names, the name Emmanuel, and we're going to do that by looking at a passage in the New Testament and then going back to Isaiah. I just wanted to compliment those who took up the challenge last week to read the book of Isaiah. I know a number of you took these little handouts that we passed out, and some of you just got it today. It's going to be easy for you to catch up because there's only five readings per week, so you're only five behind. You can easily catch up. And uh, if you want to read through this, uh, by the end of the month, you'll have read through the entire book of Isaiah. I also want to compliment those who uh, plowed ahead into this. I, I maybe should have offered a little disclaimer last week. Isaiah can be a little bit depressing at the beginning. Some of you who started it found that out, right? He can be a little bit tough sledding. So I just invite you to hang in there with him. And as you're reading this, remember what we're trying to do. We're trying to focus on what does he have to say about Christ Because Isaiah, of all the Old Testament prophets, had the most to say about Jesus than any of them, and he's got some really great things to say about who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do. So I invite you to continue through that journey if you have not yet started. Uh, Give it a try. Today I'm going to start by reading uh, Matthew chapter 1, so I'd like to invite you to follow along with me. We're looking at the Christmas story and looking at the names of Jesus as it comes out of these stories. And so we're looking at Matthew chapter 1, so we're in the New Testament, the very first book, the very first chapter. Uh, Matthew 1 starts with a whole bunch of names. Uh, Matthew is giving us the kind of location for Jesus, how he fits into the line of David and to the history of God's people. And then we come to this really great passage in uh, verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, starting with verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but... Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. Once upon a time, a king hosted a ball. The purpose of this ball was to find a wife for the prince. The prince dreaded attending this ball because he faced the prospect of meeting countless wifely prospects who were totally unsuited for him. 
Upon arriving at the ball, the prince spotted a young princess who captivated his attention. He sought her out and spent the entire ball dancing with her. She was charming, witty, funny, fascinating, and beautiful. He adored her. The prince started to imagine that she might be his wife. And he started to think about the wonderful life they would have together. But when the clock sounded the first stroke of midnight, she ran away. And the prince didn't even know her name. As she fled the palace, she lost one of her glass slippers. And that was all the prince had to remember her by. When he thought about life without her, he became very depressed. So he made a plan to find her. He sent out search parties with a glass slipper. Try this shoe on the foot of every woman in the kingdom, he said. Find the one who wore the slipper that night. And so they set off on this quest. But after dealing with countless feet, with no success, the prince began to despair of ever finding the one who could make his dreams come true. Do you know this story? Someone has a really great expectation. And you know that an expectation is a combination of um, kind of combining our deepest desires and our highest hopes, right? That's a grand expectation. And their expectation gets crushed. This is actually a pretty common story. Have you ever had a grand expectation and had it crushed? Maybe you had a deep longing and a very high hope and it just went unfulfilled. And maybe this great destruction of your grand expectation was like a punch in the gut. Took your breath away. Knocked the wind out of your sails. That's a common story. This is the story of Matthew chapter 1. Joseph has found his princess He's to be married. He's already mapping out what this life is going to look like. He has very high hopes. This grand expectation is already starting to shape him. It's shaping his imagination and the kinds of things he's thinking about. It's shaping his heart. But before his expectation can be met, Mary is found to be pregnant. And the baby is not his. This is a disaster. That's like a punch in the gut. His grand expectation is gone. And so he does what we do when our expectations get crumbled. We scramble. We got to fix this. We got to do something about this. Something has to happen. What can he do? He thinks about this. And just I want you to imagine all of the grief that is hidden between these two short lines. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph is tumbling into a very dark place. And in this dark place, all of his grand expectations have come to ruin. And he's trying to figure out what he can do next to make a plan. He wants to do the right thing. 
there's rules about this, you know. But he's not sure exactly what the right thing is because he really cares about Mary and he doesn't want to disgrace her. Maybe he can do this compromise of a quiet divorce. No one else has to know. Joseph is in pain in this moment. And so you can figure if he's human, he's probably looking for shortcuts. He's probably looking for a quick fix, a a compromise, something that can ease his pain and get him out of this in the least, with the least possible grief. What should he do? These are the things going through his mind. And then we're told after he had considered this, all this stuff, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Well, wait, this isn't part of his plan. He's got to wonder how that's going to work out. But the angel says, don't be afraid. Take her home to be your wife because... What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And now Joseph has a choice. Is he going to trust God's plan? Or is he going to trust his own plan, his own scheming? Ever been there before? Do I trust my way? Do I trust God's way? The choice of trusting self or trusting God is part of this story. It's also part of the backstory, which gets introduced to us in verse 23 when we're told that all of this stuff that Joseph is dealing with in this, the pregnancy of Mary, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this promise from Isaiah 7 comes in a chapter that starts with a really kind of interesting setup. If you're willing to jump back there, you can look it up if you want Isaiah 7, or you can just listen. Here's the way chapter 7 of Isaiah starts. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against him. They came against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied himself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. This is another story of a grand expectation that gets shattered. Did you follow it? Ahaz is the king of Judah. Uh, These enemy kings have decided they're going to come against him. They want to attack him. So they marshal their forces. They attack Jerusalem, but they are not successful. They do not conquer the city. And so there's like dancing in the streets, and Ahaz and all the people are like, hey, we are safe. Our great expectation is that now we are safe. Nobody can come against us. And then word comes that they make another alliance with an even more powerful enemy, and they're coming again. This time, they are surely going to take Ahaz and his people captive, and they're going to destroy the city of people. And their grand expectation, all of their hopes are shattered their highest hopes and their deepest longing that they would be safe, it's not going to happen. And so Ahaz, the king, he starts to scheme. I need a fix. we got to do something to make this right. So what if I make an alliance with someone who's even more powerful than them 
And he runs off to the Assyrians, who are kind of like the big boys in the neighborhood, and he makes a plan that he's going to defend himself against the enemies. Problem solved, right? No, he's looking for a quick fix. He's looking for a way out. God says something fascinating in the midst of all this. God comes to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, Hey, listen, Ahaz, be careful. Don't jump into anything too hasty, he's saying. Be calm, God says to Ahaz. Be calm. Don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stumps of firewood. God says, they're nothing. These people who are coming against you, don't worry. I got this, God says. God says, they're nothing. Even though they're lined up to invade, God himself says, it will not take place. They're not going to invade you. I will not let it happen. God is saying, trust me. I'm going to watch over you. God even says to Ahaz, hey, ask me for a sign and I'll give you a sign to prove that I'm trustworthy. But at this point, Ahaz has already made this alliance and he's already got this plan. He's already done his scheming. He says, I just think I'm going to move forward to it. But God says, okay, I'm going to give you a sign anyway, even though you don't want it. And here's the sign that God says to you. Behold, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel. Ahaz's grand expectation for safety is being threatened, and God says, trust me, uh, and the sign of this is going to be, this woman's going to have a baby. That's kind of an interesting sign. That's not a sign of like a thunderbolt from heaven. It's not uh, mighty warriors or chariots or horses or armies swooping in. That's not the sign. It's not divine fireworks. The sign is a baby. And about this time, I suppose that Ahaz is thinking, I think I'll stick with my plan. I think I'll make this alliance. I'm not going to trust God. That's what Ahaz decides to do. And Ahaz has missed a really critical piece of this promise. The, the, the promise says that this virgin will have a baby, and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if Ahaz has been paying attention, he gets what God is trying to say to him. God is saying, listen, Trust me, I'll be with you. I know it looks dark. I know it looks bleak. I know that there's trouble and the armies are lining up to invade you. But trust me, God says, and I will be with you. And you know, this is what God has been saying to his people throughout all generations. In fact, the whole story of the Bible starts with this beautiful picture of God saying, I'm going to make a man and a woman I'm going to make them in my image. And why does he make them? So that he can be with them. That's why he makes them. And we have this picture of them walking in the garden together. And everything is going just fine until the people decide, I'm going to rebel against this God. This God who wants to be with us. I'm not going to listen to him. And then all hell breaks loose. And this story continues throughout the book, the whole Bible, until we get to the book of Revelation and we have this wonderful picture of the end of time when we are told that there's a new heaven and a new earth and it's described as God saying, I will be with you and you will be with me. I will be your God and you will be my people and there will be no more tears and no more sorrow or no more crying because we'll be together. This is the picture. This is what God desires. He, de- he desires to be together with his people. 
And the whole story of Scripture is about that. And Isaiah misses this. Isaiah misses this beautiful promise where God is saying, I want to be with you. I'm going to walk with you. Now, the prophets have been making these promises to the people for some time that God wants to be with you and that God is not going to abandon you or leave you. And I have been imagining that this promise of God's presence and uh, the fulfillment of this promise is like a glass slipper. And you can almost see the prophets throughout all of history taking this glass slipper and saying, I'm going to try this slipper on this person and see if they fulfill God's promise. I'm going to try it on this person and see if they fulfill. I'm going to try it on this. And they're, throughout the generations, they've been trying these slippers of God's promises and God's prophecies on all these different peoples. And sometimes they get close. They find someone and it's like, oh, this person has fulfilled that prophecy for now. It doesn't do it all, but it does it partially. And then one day, there's a person who comes and it absolutely fulfills all of God's promises completely. And it's the person who was born in a manger. The person who says he's going to come be with us. Not just a short-term fulfillment of some of the prophecies, but absolute fulfillment of all of God's prophecies and all of God's promises wrapped up in this one little baby. And this is the word that came to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. And Matt, Joseph knows all these promises. And you've got to wonder if he doesn't start to imagine what's going on here. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph's ears perk up, and he wonders, is this child of Mary the one? Is he going to fulfill this? Will this be God with us? Will I trust God's plan? And then we read, uh, and Joseph wakes up, and he did exactly what the angel told him to do. So Joseph does not follow his plan. Joseph trusts God's plan. And he takes Mary's home, he takes Mary home to be his wife. And he finds himself in a full-blown disaster, which has knocked him down. And there's no doubt that he wants a fix and he wants a quick fix. The quicker the better. But God says, I'm going to fix it in an unexpected way. Just trust me. And in the meantime, while I'm fixing all of this, Uh, I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you alone. Joseph's response shows that he does trust God. And you see that he's starting to recover from this disaster, that he's finding relief from this disaster. And my hunch is that this promise of God with us is kind of at the foundation of his recovery, that he can move forward even in the face of this disaster uh, because he knows that God will be with him. Did you know that in the history of the world, most gods were thought of as being distant and aloof? That if you study any of this, you discover that people didn't want God to come close because God is, the gods were usually thought to be like angry and hostile and bitter. And uh, if the gods showed up, it usually meant trouble. And so they would make their prayers and they would make their offerings and their sacrifices. This is an attempt to appease God. And the reward for appeasing God is God stays away. You keep God's at, at arm's length. That's what the theory behind all those offerings. But then the God of the Bible shows up and he says, well, I don't want to be kept away. I want to come close. I want to be with you. I want to walk with you. And the whole story of the Bible is, I think, 
could be summarized with this name, Emmanuel, God with us. This is what God wants. Is the promise of God's presence enough if you are in the middle of a disaster? That's my main question today. Is the promise of God's presence enough if you are suffering great pain or great trials or great difficulty or great hardship? Is that enough? I've been wrestling with this all week. I had lunch with somebody on Thursday and I was chatting with him about what was coming. And Thursday is late in the week for me in terms of writing sermons, and I actually had nothing written on Thursday. So I'm at lunch, and I'm like trying to like make good use of my time. So during lunch, I'm asking him to help me write my sermon. I asked him the question, what do you want most in a time of trouble or discouragement or disaster? That was the first question I asked him. And he said, what I want most when I'm in trouble is I want it fixed. Yes? And I go, well, what if... And he said, I want it fixed now. So I asked him, what if it can't be fixed today? And his answer immediately was, well, then fix it tomorrow. If we're in trouble, we want it fixed. I said, well, what if there's no quick fix? What if the fix is far off? Then what do you want? What gives you hope? And this is what he said to me. It would help me if I knew I was not alone. I told him I was going to use that in this sermon. What if the fix you really want most is not coming as soon as you want it? What do you do? Would it help you to know that someone is with you always? Would it help to know that God was with you always? That he's promised to never leave you or forsake you, to never abandon you, Would it help to know that this is the God who does not stay on his throne in heaven, but comes down to be born as a baby in a manger, in a stable, wrapped in swaddling clothes? A God who says he's not going to stay in heaven on the throne, but come and walk the dusty roads of this planet and be hungry and experience grief and experience pain and suffer? Would it help you to know in the midst of your disaster that this God decided to come be with us. And even though that coming to be with us meant that he was going to walk these dusty roads all the way to the cross and that he was going to go to that cross and he was going to die bloody and beaten for our sins, would it help you in the middle of your disaster to know that that God was going to be with you? This past Monday night, I had a little meltdown, and it was a function of a bunch of junk in my life that's been piling up, and the straw that broke the camel's back was my mom had a stroke, and I'd been running back and forth to Des Moines, and I was tired, and so I got home Monday night, and I could feel myself falling into a really dark place, and I was crabby. The next day, I was, so I went to bed crabby, and when I do that, I always wake up crabby. And uh, I decided I needed to try to explain this to Mary. I didn't want her to be surprised, so I went to her in case she hadn't noticed, but of course she had noticed. (laughs) 
And this is the explanation that I tried to explain to her as I was thinking about how I was feeling. I said, I'm, you know, I'm normally super optimistic. I'm always thinking everything's going to be great. But maintaining my optimism is sometimes a really difficult thing for me. It feels like I'm walking a tightrope. And the way that I stay on the tightrope is I look around to try to see bright spots of where good stuff is happening. Where is God at work? Where is there joy? Where is there peace? Where is everything okay? And as I walk my tightrope, I watch these bright spots, and that helps me maintain my balance. And I was telling Mary that I sometimes get pushed against while I'm on this tightrope. And the stuff that pushes against me is trouble and pain and sorrow and grief and disaster and other people's trouble and power and pain and disaster until finally I can get pushed only so long and then I lose my balance. And I fall off my tightrope and I, t- I tumble into a very deep and a very dark place. And when I go down there, I want to be left alone. But I know that that's not really a very healthy way to deal with it. And so this was why I decided I should try and explain this to Mary. And when I explain this to her, she says to me, why didn't you tell me about this right away? And my answer is, because this place is so dark, I don't want to take anyone down there with me. And she says to me, I want to go there with you. And that was the first step in climbing up out of this dark place, knowing that she would be with me. Of course, we, with our modern sensibilities, when we hear the story of Cinderella, we know that the prince places the glass slipper on Cinderella's foot, and they don't live completely happily ever after because they have their ups and downs. But they go through it together. And that's a pretty good story when you can go through life with somebody. And it's an even better story when we recognize that God says, I am always with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am your God and you are my people. And the reason we know that is true is because God gave us a sign. And this is the sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and his name is Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today and we give you thanks for the truth of your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who is powerful and active and working within us. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who we adore. God, I can think of no better way for us to continue in this time of worship than for us to celebrate together in your Lord's Supper. And as we prepare to come to this table to celebrate your presence with us in this bread and in this cup, we recognize that, God, we have not always trusted you, that we have oftentimes gone off thinking that we had a better plan, and in pursuit of this plan, we have uh, failed to listen to you and failed to trust you and failed to remember that you are always with us. And so, God, we look into our own hearts right now and we confess that we need to trust you better. And we thank you that even when we don't trust, um, you still don't leave us. And so we praise you and thank you for that in Jesus' name.